0: Doctor! And there are podcasts. Welcome to Pieces of Eighth. The podcast that's as dramatic as putting a furious fortosaur in your underpants and then telling it its mother smells like a pterodactyl's nest and that it was hatched from a rotten egg. Oh yes, we're back for another edition of the Doctor Who Podcasts that's totally dedicated to the worlds of the Eighth Incarnation of the Time Lord, the happy-go-lucky one, with no time for smart arse playing chess on a thousand boards at once. Or the namby pambi boo-hoo, I killed all of my people, then dealing with the fallout and guilt of surviving a temporarily devastating time war.
1: Thank you, Jeremy Clarkson! <laughs> me. Each week we take a look at something from the Doctor Who multiverse that features Paul McGann's Doctor, the one with more energy the a tigger who's had 12 cans of Red Bull and half a dozen Mars bars.
0: Oh dear. It's catching. Damn it!
1: (laughs) My name's (laughs) Rebecca Chapman,
0: (laughs) and I'm Kenny Smith, and we are continuing with our ongoing quest to talk all things McGann, whether it's his fleeting appearances on our screens, or his many appearances in books, novellas, full cast audios, short stories, comics, animations, talking books, or anything else. For our 8th episode, we're featuring, for the very first time, a full-cast, full-length 8th Doctor adventure from Big Finish, which packs more punch than the 12th Doctor confronting a racist square in the face.
1: Stop it! Stop it! (laughs) (laughs) We're chatting today about Max Warp, the second story in the second run of 8th Doctor Adventures, which starred Paul McGann with Sheridan Smith as Lucy Down, Kenny, (laughs) (laughs) as well as Graham Garden, James Fleet and Duncan James from Blue. Interesting facts about Duncan James from Blue. He was the best Frankenfurter that I have ever seen in the Rocky Horror Picture
0: Show. Ah, I've never seen it. It was amazing.
1: <laughs> it was originally released in February 2008, having been recorded on August the 13th, 2007. So let's hear the trailer for it.
2: Strap yourselves in, engage, thrust and prepare for Max Wall.
1: one rubbish date doctor. What? This! It's all boys with toys isn't it? Boys
0: with toys? All right
1: middle-aged bloke with spaceships. Altitude 800 miles! 600! Stop. Are they trying to start a war?
3: They are great little gadgets aren't they? Calculating. There are spaceships and there are spaceships. Ah! <laughs> There
1: is no way out. What, no escape pods? What sort of spaceship to you call this?
3: And then there are spaceships.
1: Who's the guy with the ball patch and the touching? It's beyond that, now. The kids will interpret this as an act of war. I'm gonna get the doctor. He'll know what to do.
2: Oh, my God. I never thought I'd hear that again. What is it? A battle readiness alert means only one thing. We're at war. Don't
1: worry about me! Go! Go!
0: That is top notch. Are you a bit of a fan of Top Gear? Have you ever watched it?
1: I have watched it. I have. I was always a fan, but never of a very specific person. You know, I, I quite liked Hammond and James. James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I always quite liked them. They were always fun to watch. What yeah. about you? Did you?
0: Well, the thing is, I'm not much of a car fan, but I mean, I know how to drive them, and I love driving them, and I love driving big. Posh fast cars, which I've done a few of in my time for work stuff, but I wouldn't say that I'd go out my way to watch, you know, every episode of Top Gear. I mean, the James Bond episode where they did the where they built an underwater car and where they did an invisible car it was hilarious. That was really, really good fun. But like yourself, I had a few problems with the main man, Mister Clarkson, who. Yes. We'll hear more about him shortly when we speak to our first guest. But no, I'm not a huge fan of his and his xenophobic attitudes, which um, slightly curse right. with my own politics. But let's not talk about them. Let's talk about the fun stuff of Max Warp. I think it's an absolute gem. And I'm genuinely amazed that this was the second story of the second season, as you said. Because to me, it's got season opener all over it. It's, it feels like a TV yeah. season, a Doctor Who's Tenant episode where it's just having fun. It's satirical and it's something that we all recognise and know.
1: Yes, it's fantastic. It's, like you said, it is season opener. It's fun. It's exciting. It's murder mystery. It's fantastic. I really like it.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's an absolute gem and... I did get a vinyl release fairly recently where it was available in Asda and my copy is sitting just to my right. So I look to there and I can see Sheridan looking down on me because I used to help when Chris Griffin was a big Finnish marketing guru or marketing gnu. And Chris knew that I loved my vinyl and he would ask me, which stories do you think would be good for vinyl releases? And this was one that I suggested because I thought, It's just, it it takes everything you'd want for the general public. It's a standalone. You don't need to know much. All you need to know is that the Doctor travels in a police box and he has a companion with him. And the fact that you've got this top gear type setting and recognisable characters is perfect. It's absolutely perfect for that. And it's very commercial and it's brilliant. I absolutely love it. I think it's so clever. You've got brilliant direction from Barnaby Edwards, a fantastic cast, as you mentioned, who was in it. And I love it. I genuinely love it. It's one that I can quite happily pop on any time And I know that I'll get a giggle from it.
1: Definitely. It is a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. So why don't we find out some more about it, as we recently spoke with the writer Jonathan Morris, didn't we?
1: We
2: did. He was lovely.
0: He is. He's a very lovely man. And he's going to talk to us now and take us to Max Warp.
2: I'm Jonathan Morris, and I wrote uh, Doctor Who Max Warp.
1: We always ask our guests the same couple of questions to start with, but what do you remember about Paul McGann being announced as the Doctor?
2: Oh, uh, in the 90s. Well, I was on a sort of a well-deserved hiatus from being a Doctor Who fan. I was sort of in the wilderness. Because <laughs> while other Doctor Who fans were being very good and keeping the flame alive, I just sort of um, went off and went down. The flame can look after itself without me. So I I wasn't really following Doctor Who at the time, but I remember seeing the, um, and with the girlfriend I was with at the time, she didn't know I used to be a Doctor Who fan. So I was watching it going, Doctor Who's come back, oh, be excited. And pretending not to care, going, oh, oh, that show? Yeah, that thing for kids, yeah, I remember. Tom, was it Peter Peter Baker? I don't know. So I was was desperately trying to be cool about the whole thing. And that's my memory. I know I watched it, but for some reason, I I can't remember anything else. I know that you'd, years beforehand,
0: thought of McGann as being a potential doctor from his Mo Morris
2: appearance. Well, that was a a long time ago when I was, um, he was in a thing called Give Us a Break, I think it was, with uh, Robert Lindsay. And he played a character called Mo. And just in, in that, and then he's in the Monocle Mutineer, I think a year later or two years later. And you just went, he had something, I think. He, he had, um, He's obviously, he's quite likeable in playing, like, economical missionaries, playing someone who's actually not a very nice person. Yeah, I think he was sort of, he had that sort of, what he has, he has the Tom Baker and the Patrick Chowton quality of someone who is working class, pretending to be posh and pretending to be well-spoken. And that is Doctor Who for me. It is someone, Tom, Tom Baker, Patrick Charlton, all going, who are doing this sort of voice of what they think a posh person sounds like. And I think Paul McGann was very much doing that in the monocle Mutineer. So I think that's somehow what made me think of Doctor Who. So where did you first see the TV movie? Did you queue an HMV
0: for a midnight opening or did you just watch it in good old TV?
2: Like I said, I, I really don't remember. I know I, had, I videoed it because I had a copy of it. But what I was doing at the time, I really can't remember. I think was it 96, wasn't it? So... I'd just moved to London and I was working full-time and studying every evening so there's a whole year of my there because I was so busy I was so overworked so I really can't remember because I, I think I'd moved to London in the end February I think and the TV movie was May wasn't it and so yeah I would have been utterly up to my ears you know, in studying and work so I don't know, sorry, rubbish answer. <laughs>
1: That's okay. Uh, we know Max Warp as an eighth Doctor story, but apparently it didn't actually start out that way. Can you briefly tell us about the original idea?
2: Well, I think it was after Blood Tide, before, in my memory, it's before I wrote Flip Flop that I submitted an idea to Gary Russell called The Serious Difficulty, uh, which is pretty much the same plot as Max Warp, apart from it has none of the top gear stuff. So it's all about an intergalactic space race tournament. It's like a sort of a, a sort of a Grand Prix meeting. Um, but it still had all the whodunit stuff. And it had my clever, what I thought was my favourite idea about the thing, which was it's a whodunit when no one dies. Uh, every single death is faked, which I'm sure has been done somewhere. I'm sure like Agatha Christie or someone's done it at some point. But I didn't know of anyone who'd done it before. So I was very excited by that. That is a twist for whodunit. And I sent it in to Gary and it wasn't rejected because things sometimes don't get rejected. They just they just disappear. <laughs> you just hear nothing back and you're, okay, that's, that's Humbleweed one, okay. So I had this sort of in my back pocket. It was, back then it was a four part story. And so when I came to doing Max Warp, I just took this 90 minutes worth of plot and compressed it and really squeezed it. And um, I think if you listen to Max Warp, you can tell where the cliffhangers are. Because obviously the cliffhanger of part one was the Doctor and his companion being in a spaceship, which I think is going to crash into a moon. And so I think Max Warp still has that sort of really good four-part stru- four structure. When I came back to doing it again, I, I added all the Top Gear stuff to bring it up to date. And by then, Nick had taken over, so he had no idea that this, had been, this was an old idea that had been reworked.
0: So how did the commission come about to revamp it for the second series of The Doctor and Lucy's Adventures?
2: just a do you have any ideas thing. I've been away from Big Finish for a, a while, about five years or something, going away writing sitcoms which paid very well but didn't get made, which was an interesting life to lead where you'll sort of spend the whole time saying, I'm working on a sitcom, I've been paid for hat-trick and go, oh, when can I see it? You're never going to see it. I just get paid for making it, a bizarre life. And I came back to big finish with uh, The Beautiful People, which was a sort of a, a panic job, really, because something had fallen through at the last minute and they needed a script in about four days. And then I did, I think Thomas Booster was around then, the first Thomas booster And I think Nick was a big champion of my work. He really wanted me to do more. And so he brought me in to do the second series of But With Sharon Smith, I was sort of going, this is this is really cool what they're doing. Because the previous Pormagans had been... Following on from the TV series. You know, they've been um, four-part stories. I think they'd even done all faked up Radio Times entries and stuff. Because it was all imagine if it was still going on on TV. And then then he would call off into another universe. And then with the sort of the two-part 50-minute stories, it was David Tennant and Chris to what Russell T. Davis is doing. And certainly my my big sort of starting point for this was to go, okay. If I was doing an episode for the TV series, what's the sort of thing that Russell will be doing there? And I think Bad Wolf had done Doctor Who doing Big Brother and um, What Not to Wear and uh, Weakest Link. Okay, so Doctor Who's going to be picking up on stuff in the zeitgeist. It's going to be and Top, say Top Gear. Oh well, I'll do Top Gear because if I don't do Top Gear, the TV series will do Top Gear next year. I'll get in there first the TV series didn't quite go in that direction as much as I thought it would. I know that for a while they were going to do a, a Most Haunted episode with the Doctor landing in an episode of Most Haunted. But that sort of fell by the wayside. I think they they realised that I think Bad Wolf had kind of got all that out. But yeah, it was that idea of going, OK, Top Gear is, is the next one. It's the one that Doctor Who hasn't done yet. I mean, now you go, Doctor Who would be on the, um, the Great British Bake Off. That's the obvious thing to do. It would be the, the Great Space Bake Off. That's... I don't no, I'm gonna write that down. It's a good idea.
1: I'd listen. <laughs> Are you a big fan of Cars or Top Gear?
2: I did watch it at the time. Uh, I have no interest in Cars, but I did watch Top Gear, so I think that just sort of demonstrates why its um, appeal it got at that point. That you were watching it because it, it was funny and because they did these sort of sort of adventures, these stunts, where they they sort of you know they try and drive to the North Pole or something. And so you, I'd watch it in that sort of way, a level. But I. Hadn't, I I have no understanding of cars. If if I was in a road accident tomorrow and someone said what car hit you I'd go, it was red. <laughs> it was a right. red car. You know I, I've, I have I've car blindness. In that sort of sense. So
0: yeah. well, people tend to think of this primarily as a top gear spoof. It really is a murder mystery with no murder, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the top gear thing was just a sort of some change it from a Grand Prix to this now a motor show. And you'd see these adverts in the underground for the motor shows, uh, where it would be their special guest would be someone from the gadget show or someone from television who'd just be sort of standing at a podium and talking for half an hour. Quite a bizarre sort of thing. And I remember talking to someone who'd been to one of these things because they were buying a car that was, wouldn't be wouldn't be constructed for another five years. That it was like a sort of kit. That they would be paying. Five hundred pounds a month for the next five years, and at the end of it, they get this incredible car. Okay, I mean I'm not going to judge. I like Doctor Who. That's that's really weird. Uh, I'm not going to judge someone who spends all their money. But yeah, so it was just a sort of setting. A sort of that's a sort of recognisable thing on Earth. The sort of the motor show, less your a space version. Uh, but the Top Gear thing sort of does feed into it quite well, because I was listening to it just this morning and. One of the things that Top Gear did, I mean, this is, this is very much of its time, which, which is that it would have sort of Jeremy Clarkson saying the unsayable. So he'd make sort of jokes off slightly off, I'd say off colour jokes or about ethnic minorities or different countries and stuff. And go, oh, it's okay. He doesn't mean it. It's ironic. You haven't had, and be offended. You go like oh, you can't be offended. Why are you being offended? Have you got? Haven't you got a sense of humour? It's ironic. but I was just sort of maybe subconsciously. But I was watching this and going, but this isn't ironic. All he's doing is doing the thing of saying the unsayable and getting a laugh with it. But there is no. But he doesn't really mean it anyway. He's not playing an over the top character. And there was always the sense going. No, he actually means all this. I mean, he's. I think that is sort of more really contemporary now that's still that's still the case now that um even more now we have the sort of people who make a living by saying the unsayable and then whenever people take offense they go oh it was just a joke haven't you got a sense of humor and so i think that's actually quite a sort of a serious point underneath it that um that people are, were getting away with pretending things were jokes when actually it was nothing funny and they actually meant them how easy
1: did you find it to capture the voice of Lucy, given you'd written for the Eighth Doctor in novel form at this point?
2: Well, the, the novel thing was a long time before that, I think. It felt like a long time. And certainly with Paul McGann, I was listening to the first series. I think they sent me the CDs of the first series. Um, certainly they sent me the, the Steve Lyons one that started all off. So I had that CD, and I had, so I had an idea of Sheridan's performance and I had an idea of how they were changing Paul McGann's character, or contemporary. But the other thing is just, I'd sort of come off the back of spending years plugging away writing sitcoms, and I was very much in that mindset. I mean, looking at the script of Max Warp, it's got far more directions about line delivery than I'd normally put in a Doctor Who, because it's a comedy script where you need to sort of, where you need to have more instructions on that sort of thing. And it has it has so many jokes in it. It's like Solidly funny, (laughs) Uh, but there's stuff in there which absolutely tickles my funny bone. because obviously I wrote it to make myself laugh in the first place. And so there's just things like uh, where Kill Bride goes, this button's playing, this one's fast forward, I don't know what that button does. I, I just roar with laughter because you go, that's absolutely a real life thing, but you never get that in science fiction. You never get someone going, I don't know what that button does. And there's just things like that where I was just I'm just I was just hooting all the way through it really, and it is those little bits, those odd little lines that make you so. Uh, so with with um, Sheridan Smith, I mean she'd been doing two points of Lago, I think by then on television. I think she was quite well known. I think she'd been in the royal family as well, so she was very much a up-and-coming star. And I mean there there are two reasons why she does so well, why her career has gone so like, up like a rocket. And it is that she can do anything you throw at her. She'll do it brilliantly. She's a she's a natural, untrained, brilliant actress. And that's the first thing. And the second thing is she's enthusiastic. I mean, when I was at the recording, I wasn't at the recording for Max Warp, but I was I was there for um, ones the following year. And uh she's just really happy to be there. And you're going, Well, you're a Short Smith, you, you 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 can you're you're doing TV all the stuff, but just when actors turn up and they're excited and happy and keen even if I think that's part of the act to pretend to be excited to be there it makes a big difference so I think that's why Sheridan because she's brilliant to work with and she can can do anything.
0: I think you summed her up perfectly just with describing the TARDIS as a shed and time and relative dimensions and shed it just just captures the character perfectly that's the one that if I was to quote a Lucy Miller line to sum up the character that's the one.
2: Yes, I think, um, I, th- I don't know where that came from. I think that had been kicking around. I think I'd written it on something else, but I don't know where. But, yeah, it's just a, it's just a silly joke. <laughs> But it's, yeah.
0: It works. I mean, obviously, you mentioned that you weren't at the recording. So what did you think about the play when you heard it in the end and the cast you were given?
2: Uh, I think it's brilliant. I think, I mean, there's one thing I don't like about it, which we'll come to later, because it's always nice to get the things I don't like about something off my chest after 13 years, when everyone's when it's, when it's allowed, and the statute of limitations is passed, but I'm so impressed with it, I, the cast that Barney did, was, got together, was just phenomenal you know, Graham Garden, James Fleet, Nick Grimble and the, the acts. I just wrote this as a silly thing, I think the Kith should have West Country accents, and he, had, he plays two Kith and I think one has a Bristol accent and one has like a, a Dorset accent so you get one going over oh, there, the other one going, and <laughs> it's just like, because I, I just get, I just sort of go. I think aliens should have different accents. I think that's that's quite funny. So I think the cast was was really good. I think the production was great, and it's just lovely when you write these things because I've written I've written comedy things where the script has been funny, and it just something something happens and it just collapses. It just falls flat. But with this, I think because Barney got really good comedy actors in and um, Paul McGann can do comedy as well, he's that, that they got the rhythm, they got the delivery. I mean it's a very weird thing to be playing comedy because you're doing lines which are funny, but you're not saying them as a joke. And you know, your character you're playing isn't making a joke, but it's still funny. So it's a very it's an extra layer, it's an extra thing the actor has to think about on top of all the other things they have to think about. And it was just you, you got the, he got a fantastic cast and it was I was so happy with it. There's a couple of things I, I quibble about, which is I just think whenever I listen to anything, all of pretty much every big finish I've ever done, I just listen to it and go, "Oh, it could be a bit shorter." <laughs> I'm always going, "I could tighten it up," you know, just tighten it up. Just it's just me, it's, it's me, write, me writing in my head afterwards, going, "Actually, that line's not needed, is it?" Um, there's also the Tannoy announcements, which are which go on, which introduce them sometimes sort of the top and tail some scenes which I'd written as just sort of stuff to go in the background that you'd only really hear if you had it on headphones. And it was just there. So I was just writing this silly stuff, my own amusement, which I didn't really expect people to hear as part of the finished thing. So I'm not keen on it because I think they're, they're all stupid in-jokes. There's some of them in-jokes that only I get. <laughs> and as I think someone says, will the person in charge of the Dribb Cop space boat is parked on a double yellow line? And I know that's a reference to an obscure Joe Meek track from the 1960s. But no one else is going to get that joke. It's not even, even if you do get that joke, it's not funny. So I, I'm thinking that should have just been buried in the background. That's not supposed to be a thing which is wasted around. So that's that's my, my quibble. Here. So, yeah. <laughs>
1: of course, the story was given another lease of life when it was released on vinyl. Were you pleased about this? Like, how, how did you feel when this happened?
2: I think delighted. I don't know if there's a pecking order to this. And because I got envious of other ones coming out on vinyl, going, oh, "I see John dorney has got one out on vinyl. Oh, oh I, I see um, you know uh, Nick Dick's got another one out. I see Matt Fitchner's got one out on vinyl. None of mine, I noticed, on vinyl. None of mine have been." <laughs> and so I was, I was just sort of pathetic, isn't it? I was, so I was delighted to have my turn to have one out on vinyl, and for it Max Walk going, "Oh yeah, that's a really good one. That's a really funny one. That that's a story that anyone can just sort of hop into it and pick it up and listen to it and get it." Because some stuff, you know, it's it's sort of Doctor Who or it's sort of continuity or it's open-ended in some way. It's, you know, it's introducing a character. With this, they can go, oh, he's the Doctor, she's the companion. You don't need to know anything else. It's a really good selling point for Big Finish and for me because it makes me look good as a writer because of brilliant production and cast and so on. And it's good for Big Finish because it's excellent. And it shows the company at its best. It's, It's going, oh, they do really good stuff. They do really funny stuff with great casts which sounds as good as anything, actually better than stuff on the radio. So yeah, I was delighted with that. And sort of the sleeve and the design and the little colored vinyl is gorgeous. The, the only sort of negative is I don't like records. <laughs> you look behind me like I've got CDs, CDs up the wall. I, don't, I never really got on with one because um, I think when I was about eight, I'd sort of, sort of gently placing the needle on the record and it'd go, and you destroy the record. And that just seemed to be my life with records. That so I'm not going to play Maxwell ever because I know that when I put the vinyl on, it'll just do a, rip it, a massive scratch across it, and be never played again. So yeah, I, I'm scared of vinyl. It, I, it terrifies. I'm scared of it. I have had nightmares about that. Whereas with CDs, CDs, obviously CDs, you can put jam. Yeah, that, that's. <laughs> so I was, I'm delighted to have this object, which is on my shelf, which I can never ever listen. to.
0: Tony, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time
2: and joining us in Pieces of Eight today. Okay, that's great fun, thank you.
1: Yes, many thanks and hopefully we'll speak to you again very soon. So Kenny, you also spoke with the man who composed the Max Warp theme, and the rest of the score for the story?
0: That's right. Yes, Andy Hardwick is a friend of mine. And as you said, he did the music for the story with Gareth Jenkins doing the sound design. And he's been working for Big Finish for quite a while because he used to work with another good friend of mine, Russell Stone, who introduced him as Andy and Gareth worked for ERS Studios. I never did find out what ERS stands for, I should ask him. Anyway, I do a wee chat with Andy about how it was coming up with a spoof Top Gear theme and the rest of
3: it. I'm Andy Hardwick, and I did the music for Max Walt.
0: You've said in the past that you're not a Doctor Who fan, but did you watch his movie when it went out at the time?
3: I didn't when it went out at the time, but I did when Gary Russell asked us to do Stones of Venice, I think it was. And so this is, this is in the early days of anything we were doing for Big Finish. So I was like, yeah, let's watch the movie, let's watch the movie. So I did watch it then, because I knew I'd be working on it. And I thought it was quite exciting. As, even as a non-Doctor Who fan, I just thought, no, this is great. You know, so I watched the movie, I thought it was a bit naff, to be honest, but um, Russell said, don't watch it, it's naff, but I do not use that word exactly. But um, yeah, so I did watch that then. And it sort of, I don't know whether, whether it helped, but it, you sort of got the feel of the character, because he he really kind of, you know, Paul McGann's character is very strong, very very. So you, you kind of got that, even from that that movie, He carried that on into the first thing I worked on, which was Stones of Venice. But that was my first. Yeah, that's the first time I ever came across it.
0: And he's such a good doctor as well, isn't he? He's definitely the best thing Brilliant. in that
3: movie. I, well, he's the only good thing that movie? I think <laughs> probably quite well. Actually, no. I think I think Syl did, a, did a great performance in that film. Sylvester McCoy, I thought he was great in that. Um, you know, especially as he, you know, knowing he's going to get killed off, I thought he was that, that. was one of his best performances. So Not that I've seen that much, but um, I thought he was great, Sylvester McCoy. I think. So uh, you know, a small part, but yeah, great. He did it well. I suppose
0: when you're given a script and you're told that you're going to need to do a version of the Top Gear theme in space, that's pretty much a gift for a composer, isn't it?
3: Excuse me. Um, If you can do it without litigation, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think (laughs) I pushed it right to the limit. And uh, I thought, yeah, this is great. So we'll, we'll sort of do a trash can version of what's on television at the moment. Because it's it's spaceships and it's all a bit crap and 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 so yeah and, and, and do something very very similar to the uh, that original guitar riff which is I can't remember what tune that's from and uh, just just play around with the notes a bit and and I got Gareth to play the guitar on it um, so he played the lead guitar on that so I just I just programmed the, the rest of it up and stuck it on and just said is this all right and they said yeah brilliant so uh, and that was it it was really about it but yeah it was a real laugh to do it and see how how close we could actually get it. For the BBC to go, mm, no, maybe not. know it's a bit too close. But no, it was fine. So that was good. But I think we were right on, right on the limit. With it,
0: did you ever had to do anything like that before? To do something sort of a pastiche or homage to a bit of music like that?
3: Um, I think I probably have. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's stuff I've done in the past. have asked me to make it sound like like certain things, not just for big finish, but you know, off the top of my off the top of my head, I can't remember. Sometimes I do it deliberately, even though I'm not been, I've not been told to. I remember doing the theme tune, and it's off topic now. For the Judge Dredd, the the Strontium Dog, thing with with Simon Pegg, if that was God, that's that's twelve years, 10, 15 years ago, I think, something like that. And I kind of thought, great, I'm gonna I'm gonna make this a bit like. A bit like the James Bond crossed with uh, the Sweeney type, I thought. Yeah, if I can just try and get elements of those two things—the Sweeney and James Bond—so that was kind of like a pastiche of those two things, and uh, that seemed to go down quite well. <laughs> well, I wasn't told to do that. I was just like, "Can you do a theme tune? Um So that's that's one memorable one. But off the top of my head, I can't really remember any anything much because I used to do all this. I used to do lots of this kind of stuff at the studio, and I, I just can't remember to be honest
0: what else do you remember about working on this one because it's it's such a good feel to it it's fun and it's a murder mystery where nobody is actually murdered
3: no absolutely absolutely i mean the the, the big thing the big thing i loved about this one is it's got graham garden in it that to me is, is enough for me to say yeah i'll work on that because it's, it's just like graham garden it's just incredible and say it's this whole idea of this, this guy who's just like Jeremy Clarkson, but he's, he's a, but he's a bit dodgy and he's not just an idiot, you know, he's, he's actually got something a bit dark going on as well. And being played by Graham Garden. I just thought, what oh, a fantastic. So to me, that was the bit that, that gave it the comedy edge, because Graham Gardner is just a, a genius. And, and um, So I, I kind of took all my cues for this, of off him really, of off the way he he played the whole thing. I think that was probably my entire inspiration for the whole thing. You know, throwing a bit of Top Gear and ground Garden and, and perfect perfect cocktail. This
0: is there something you quite enjoy working on? Something that's perhaps a bit lighter that you can have a bit more fun with?
3: Yeah, definitely, definitely, and I'd also the pressures on as well because it was the the McGann thing, and um, you know, it was. It was the, I mean, that's the second series, wasn't it? So that was still going out on sort of live, if you like, on what was BBC Radio Seven at the time. Um, so, and also trying get it sounding like it's something half decent rather than just being stupid with it. So it's kind of like you know, trying to cross that line between being being professional and still, and you know, trying to stay within limits within parameters. Um, but yeah, it's good funding stuff like that. And like I say, when you've got Graham Garden. Being the genius that he is coming through your speakers, and you're working to that. It just makes it so much easier because you just think, well, whatever I do, I, as long as I don't muck that up, it will be fine. You know, as long as, as, long as Graham Garden's still poking through like the genius he is.
0: And it's a great cast as well. James Fleet in there and Duncan mm. James. Oh, it's
3: perfect. Perfectly cast. Barnaby, I think, cast all that. They're perfectly cast. Perfect. Everybody was perfect. Yeah. So, how do you look back on it now? I think in terms of, of working on Doctor Who back back then anyway, I mean, we were still working from the studio. I think that was such good fun making those those McGann audios. were just great. they were just great fun, and and things like that were highlights in terms of you know the, the fun parts of it. Um, and I just look back at it thinking, yeah, that was that was a real laugh. That was great. It had so many good elements in it. You know, not the stuff I did. Just the, every like you said, the way it was cast, ground guard and the script, everything, perfect, really good. Yeah, and everybody who hears it loves it. I mean, my girlfriend loves it. It's oh, one of my favourites. You know, it's, it's, it's just silly, but it's but it's kind of it's good and silly. And that Becca is how they made Max Warp
1: Now oh, I just really want to know what ERS stands for.
0: Yeah, I'm, do you know what I'm going to? T- I'm going to message him after this. I need to know. Yes, now.
1: <laughs> please do. <laughs> that was really interesting. I learned a lot from those interviews.
0: Yes, I did too. I find them fascinating. So we'll be back next week for another pieces of eighth. When our guests will be writer Andy Lane and actor Dan Starkey to tell us about the BBC audio adventure, The Scent of Blood.
1: Okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. We're talking to the man who is Strax. I love Strax. Oh my God. We will see you there. Bye. (laughs) Bye Bye-bye.